Bill, thank you very much. Uh, mentioned this morning uh, something, and uh, what a surprise it was when I came to church tonight and uh, got some Danish cookies from Portugal. Now, we're getting closer. We're getting closer. Actually, these came from Walmart. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, was, I want to tell the story about going to a steakhouse eating lobster, but I couldn't bring myself to it. So, uh, anyway... Uh, maybe that will show up uh, after I leave or something, I don't know. Well, we, uh, we st- I started a little bitty mini-series in uh, 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5. You might want to join me tonight in chapter 5. Uh, this morning, for those who did not make your way to Sunday school, uh, I really uh, talked about what should get us going. And that's the eternity of those who are lost. We need to be out there with the gospel. There are people who don't know they're lost. There are people who are hardened against the gospel who are lost. And there are people who are open to the gospel. And so that should really get us going. I remember being on a small airline that was trying to be a startup in Fort Worth. I was trying to use it to fly to Houston so they might actually create an airline from Fort Worth to Houston. And I was getting on the plane and I greeted the uh, flight attendant and she said, how's business? And I said, business is great, just like that. And man, she got excited. I don't know. She didn't know what I was doing. And so she came back after the flight took off. It was a small plane, so it didn't take long for me to be found. And uh, she said, uh, you said business was great. I said, yes, ma'am, I'm a preacher, and there are plenty of sinners in the world. Amen. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we can start up a gospel conversation almost any way. It may go somewhere. It may not go anywhere. But what should really get us going is the eternity of the lost. And then this morning in the morning service, I preached a little message on what should keep us going. And that's our eternity. No matter what's going on in your life now, wow, what life you're fixing to have once you step out of this world. Now, some of you older people need to get excited. I know it's hard for old people to get excited. They're worried about that may bring about uh, some kind of health issue. Uh, And uh, what a way to go to heaven if you did, you know. What happened to them? Well, they got too excited for Jesus. That'd be great. So anyway... Let's get our Bibles open tonight to chapter 5. Chapter 5. If you look down in verse number 9, let's begin there tonight. There's a wherefore that begins the paragraph. I don't know if your Bible has an inverted P in it. That's a notation that helps us understand where the transitions are. And so there's a transition that's going on in verse 9 after having uh, had this discussion that I mentioned this morning. And Paul's just written to us about about heaven and about going to heaven and about getting a glorified body so that we will be able to enjoy heaven. My father, uh, who died uh, 16 years ago this month, uh, planned his own funeral. He was a Baptist pastor for uh, 40-plus years, and uh, he had myself, my brother, Uh, my brother who's a singer to do some of the singing, my brother who's a pastor to do some of the preaching, me to do some preaching, my son Craig to do some preaching. He was 
He never believed in more than an hour service. Preaching 30 minutes only, you're not getting that tonight, just ease up. But his funeral service lasted an hour and a half. It was hilarious. And one of the songs my dad picked was a congregational song. It's one of those Stamps Baxter songs that, it, that was uh, entitled, I'll Have a New Body. Amen. And that, that's a great song. Let me just give you a little how it goes. It has this uh, lady's alto part, I'll have a new body. And then it's followed by a bass part by the men that says, Praise the Lord. <laughs> yeah, you got it too, right? I mean, they sang enthusiastically that day. Either the songwriter or my dad had a sense of humor, even to his, his own funeral service. Well, if you look around, it's okay. There aren't any glorified bodies here tonight. We're still in a fleshly body, a body that has the presence of Christ in our life, but it also has all of the dimensions of, of Adam and a world that is opposed to spirituality, to that. And thank God that Philippians said that God's going to change our vile body into a, a body that's fashioned like unto Christ's glorious body. So what do we do until we get that glorified body? What do we do? Verse 9 says, Wherefore we labor that whether present, that is alive, or absent, that is having died, we may be accepted of Him. Now we are accepted in the Beloved, but the idea here is pleasing to the Lord. That is that what we do alive is pleasing to God. One of these days you're going to step over on the other side and you're going to find out if your life was lived to the satisfaction of God. Now you may be pleased with how your life is going and you may have just kind of pointed your life in a way, but let me tell you today... There's something coming that you and I need to prepare for. Look at uh, the next verse. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in the body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Someone asked me, a couple of people asked me if we we're going to have a Great sermon tonight. I said, well, we'll see. Because this is probably, for the believer, one of the most shocking, stirring, sobering thoughts that while we will stand face to face before our Savior, we will also be judged by Him. Let's say that verse together. Let me read it with you as you read it out loud with me. Ready? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now follow with me as we look through this passage. It's sort of the way I do Bible study and it invades my Bible preaching as well. Look at that word we. For we, Paul says. 
must all stand and appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's talking to Corinthian believers, people who have openly identified themselves as followers of Christ. He's including himself in that time. We must, look at the next word, we must. This is a divine appointment. I don't know how you are about appointments. I try to get out of as many of them as I can. I just had an annual checkup. I may mention that in my message a little bit later on. And, and it's, uh, it's not something I look forward to, but it's something I must do to remain insured. And so I go through this annual checkup to find out that I'm a wonderful person. And uh, so uh, Paul says, we must, then look at the next word, all. And I checked the Greek text on this, and all means is all. (laughs) All believers, every child of God, as obscure as some of you try to be in this church, and as uh, featured as some of you are in this church, Some of you are not well-known. Some are very well-known. The Bible says that we must all. So I'm talking to a congregation who will be at this judgment. We must all appear. That word means to manifest, to make clear. Now coming to church is really great. And thank you for being on Sunday night. What a great Sunday night crowd. There's going to be a time, though, when you and I are going to have our lives made clear. And this is a divine summons that we are ordered to obey. We are going to appear to be revealed. One commentator said it means that we will be laid bare. Oh, I remember that this week when he said... Put on this plastic or this cloth gown. Thank you very much. I didn't mean to put that in your mind, but uh, it was as ugly for him as it was for you. But the Bible says here that we're going to appear to be laid bare. Scripture says it's, it's a time when we will be manifest. Scripture says he will bring to light the hidden things of darkness. Isn't it amazing when you, uh, you have some kind of uh, national issue, someone gets killed or some kind of uh, robbery goes on, that within a matter of a few hours, this guy who was not known in society is pulled up out of some FBI file and all of his uh, emails and all of his uh, Facebook posts and, and all of his friends are all connected to this guy like that. If that can happen on a national basis, it's not hard to think that God is able to pull up information about all of us. Unlike the FBI, they may be wrong. God is never wrong. We must all appear 
the all-knowing God doesn't need Google or Facebook or Amazon to, prof- to look at your profile. God, God doesn't come to know things. He's known them from eternity. Nothing's ever come to God. Now Malachi 3 says that God is writing a book of remembrance. But that is not a book for him. That's a book for us. God is going to have a written testimony about our lives. How's it going? What do you think's happening in that book? We must, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm a Greek student, but that's an easy word. It's, a, it's the Greek word bima. And it's, it actually appears in the Bible in uh, Acts chapter 18, Paul in conflict at Corinth was brought before the judgment seat. And they were actually uh, looking at his life and wondering where he was from and what he was doing. The city officials brought him before the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus himself was brought before the Bema. It's called Gabbatha. I think the next slide will show you a little bit of how that was. It was a raised platform where a a judge would come and sit. It was removed enough from those that were being judged so that they could not uh, get to the judge if the uh, appraisal wasn't positive. During uh, athletic times, uh, judges sat on the bima in order to uh, give out prizes to the winners. So it was not an unknown thing. By the way, look back now at the verse. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is Christ. This is the one we sing of in our church. This is where you, you read about. This is our Savior, who is Lord and judge of all men. He's your judge. You're to live your life to please Him. You're under His appraisal. The only right one who should judge us is the one who died for us. He gave Himself as our Savior. And the only one who has the right to judge us is not only our Savior, but it's our Sovereign. And the Bible promises he is the the righteous judge. That annual physical that I mentioned that I happened only five days ago are things that my doctor knows that nobody else in this world knows. And I'm glad because he does things that nobody should get paid for doing. If anybody else did that, they would arrest him. And yet he has the authority to investigate my physical life, to intrude into areas that I feel so uncomfortable about. And yet I make myself available to him. I do remind him that I can get another doctor. 
but you can't get another Savior. As unpleasant as my annual physicals are, it was one of those kinds of examinations that found a cancer in my life 21 years ago. It was one of those kind of examinations that found I had an artery that was blocked and I now proudly own a stent in one of my major arteries that make me functional. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone, are you getting this? I mean, come on now, be sure you understand. We've already said uh, that we must all, and, and now everyone, everyone, we could all hold hands tonight and we could say every one of us who are believers in Christ are going to be at this judgment. No exclusions, no excuses. God's not going to judge us in mass. We will have His full attention. Every one of us will be judged personally. And what will this judgment be? That we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone, here's the next phrase, may receive the things done in the body. I believe Paul is saying there that that simply means that from the time you trusted Christ until you appear before Him, God is looking into your life to see what you have done. See the word done? It's kind of an active word, don't you think? It's not about what you wanted to do. It's not about what you're going to do. It's about what you have done that He will judge you for. All the things that have occurred from the day of your salvation, while you're living on this earth, your whole life, according to what you've done. And then there's that last phrase that troubles a lot of people. Whether it be good or bad. Now that doesn't, the bad there doesn't naturally or make a necessity that it be moral good versus moral bad. It's actually a word that means worthless. We'll find that out in another passage. It means that we invested our life in things that, that were, were of no value. They weren't necessarily bad. They just couldn't pass the eternal test. Let me clarify a couple of things. You will not be judged at the judgment seat of Christ for your sin. You believe that Christ died for you, right? He paid your debt on the cross. And because His death consumed the wrath of God that would have been laid against us, we now need not fear that one day God will bring up before us our sinful life and judge us accordingly. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that next slide that's on the screen also will help us understand Let's go one more. 
It will also, this is not a judgment to determine if uh, you go to heaven. You're already going to be in the presence of God at this judgment. If we know a little bit about the timing, we believe that once, once uh, Christ appears at the first phase of His second coming, which is the rapture, we'll call it that, that's what most people know it as, the rapture, that the dead in Christ will rise first, which means Baptists get a break here. We're going to be, right, we're going to be resurrected first. The, the dead in Christ are going to be resurrected. That means those who have died in Christ, who have gone into the presence of Christ, have their bodies buried or have other ways that their bodies have been disposed of, God is going to raise up those bodies and when He comes back at that coming, He's going to reunite their spirit with a resurrected body. Are you with me? And then those of us who are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We're going to be in heaven. We're going to be in the presence of God. If you've trusted Christ, you will not be judged for your sins and you will not be placed in some kind of limbo to see if you may eventually get to heaven. God gave you salvation, not probation. He saved you eternally. In case you have the false idea, having said all of that, that this is nothing more than a momentary mild embarrassment or a slight emotional event that we will be, get beyond pretty quickly once we see Christ, we may need to think that out a little bit. Now, if you look down in verse 10, that, that's the verse on the judgment seat of Christ. Are you with me? What comes after 10? This isn't a trick question. What comes after 10? 11. What's the first statement of verse 11? Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I'm here to tell you tonight that once we face our Savior who died for us, whose wounds are in his hands and in his feet and in his side, and we realize what our sins have done to him, although he did it for love, there will be a natural fear of God. A reverence. Unlike anything we can manufacture with any kind of service that we put together. The fear of of God. The thought should evoke us to reconsider our cavalier attitude toward our lives. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a fearful thing, the Bible says, to fall into the hands of the living God. 
So verse 12 says, We commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. I think, I think it, what is being said here, just my own vernacular is, we shouldn't spend our time in this life trying to impress people. We get so distracted about, about trying to make ourselves look good. Ladies and gentlemen, life is about making Christ look good. It's about bringing Him glory. And I know we know that, but our old flesh cries out for attention. I found, found the other day that, that uh, my books are not on the New York bestsellers list. Just found that out. And I found out a way to get it on there. If I will buy 9,000 of my own books, that I would get a listing if I would buy my own 9,000. I have never printed 9,000 books in my life. And yet, you know, there is always, we always want to be the first. We always want the attention. We want the, the, uh, the uh, gratitude and the attention that is brought to people. But ladies and gentlemen, Paul, Paul goes on and says, uh, whether we be beside ourselves, verse 13, it's to God, or whether we be sober, it's, it's for your cause. He said, if you, if you think I'm a fool for Christ, that's okay. You'll be glad if there are occasions in your life when people think that you've lost your mind. And you really did when you got saved because he gave you a new mind. And you should be thinking in those ways. Verse 14 says, it's, it's the love of Christ that constrains us. It's the love of Christ. Isn't this, a, isn't this an amazing mixture of thought? Paul is bringing us before the presence of God at the beginning of eternity for believers... We are shocked in awe of who He is and realize as we look around, nobody's important in this stage besides Christ. And we look at Christ and we realize, man, His love is what draws me to Him. It's the love of Christ. It's His love for me that allows me to stand in heaven. It's the love of Christ. He loved me, and I love him because he first loved me. To what purpose does Christ's love constrain us? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Look at the next verse. Go on, go on with verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge... That if one died for all, then we're all dead. Now here's, here's the purpose statement. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Our day-to-day -day living right now matters... And it says here that we should not henceforth 
from the time of our salvation in this life, live for ourselves. But unto him who died for us. This is a gospel statement. Over and over again, people think, well, I've heard the gospel all of my life. I hope you hear the gospel to the end of your life. It is all about him who died for us. A.T. Robertson, the Greek scholar, reminds us that the high doctrine of Christ's atoning death carries a corresponding high obligation on the part of those who live because of Him. Selfishness is ruled out by our duty to live unto Him for their sakes He died and rose again. And so the question now is, who are you living for? The question then will be, who did you live for? Who did you live for? There's only two ways to live. You either live for yourself or you live for the Savior. And so tonight, as we think about the judgment seat of Christ and our accountability to God and the millions and billions of people who have lived, who were saved, who are now in heaven awaiting the judgment seat of Christ, it seems like God is going to say, did you live for yourself or did you live for the Savior? Now that's not a vocational thing. That's not a preacher thing. That's a Christian thing. He died for you so that you will live for Him and not for yourselves. Let's, let's look at some judgment seat passages. Would you turn with me to Romans 14? Turn back just a couple of books to Romans 14. If you will, just kind of follow with me here. I want you to get the full text of this judgment seat experience. Romans 14, verse 9. For to this end Christ died and rose again and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why judgest thou thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, Every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess. Now the idea of this passage is one of a, of a trustee who's been given assets for which he will give an account. For those who are in that kind of uh, life, uh, CPAs and others, they hold assets that are not theirs. I have an account with uh, Edward Jones, and they hold an account that's actually mine. They manage it, and, and, and we, uh, we talk about it, but it's not their money. They're not free to use that money like they want to, and what God is saying here about the judgment seat, every one of us will stand before the Lord and, and we're going to give an account. We're going to stand before Him like a trustee who has to account for the assets that He's used. Everything you have, everything I have, God owns. He's the giver of all gifts. 
All good gifts comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He's a good God who's given us many resources. Are we going to use those resources for only ourselves? He gives us all things richly to enjoy. Any good God? But he holds us accountable for that. That's the Romans passage. Turn over now another book to your right to 1 Corinthians 3. It's a familiar passage about the judgment seat beginning in verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That simply means your life, your building of your life begins on Christ. And you're free to build. This is a construction illustration. And he said this, if, Now if any man build on, upon this foundation, gold, silver, uh, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, and stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's works, notice that, of what sort, notice that word, of what sort it is, if any man's works abide, he, uh, which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's works shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. That's an eternal picture. That's about what's going to happen at the judgment seat. God is going to see what kind of life we have built. Last year, my wife and I remodeled a 50-plus-year-old house. And it took us about seven months, about five months of contract and my personal work in the midst of two months of traveling. And it was, it was just a wonderful process. We did it all by code. We had regular inspections by the city. I mean, we didn't cut any corners. You know why? We're going to live in it. Now, if you were going to live in it, I'd cut a few corners. <laughs> Probably wouldn't have put down this uh, indestructible floor that's waterproof. It looks so great in the house. I probably wouldn't have bought you new appliances throughout the whole house. I probably wouldn't have put in this wonderful walk-in shower, beautiful tile, uh, you know those little rock things? Have you seen the little bitty pebble deals that you put on the deal and kind of walk in and it kind of makes your toes feel good? We did all of that. Every time my wife, she's very frugal, that's a, good, that's a good thing. It's not bad. Every time she wanted to cut a, a little bit, well, we don't need, oh, no, no, no. I'm in charge. I mean, we just went overboard. It, it, it is so wonderful. We're living in the house now for a year. We're so happy. It's all paid for. What, what couldn't be happy about that? My point is this. Not, if you come, call ahead. We may not be home, okay? <laughs> but my point is this. When you're building something for yourself, surely you want to do your best. And if we're building something for Jesus, do we want to do something shoddy? I love this church for the excellence that's the goal. Now, we, every church doesn't always reach the 
full potential of that, but we all, all should only want to do what is excellent, what reflects our understanding and appreciation and love for God. And God says our lives are going to be judged by God and everything that doesn't relate to gold, silver, precious stone, that means those things that are not perishable rather than those that are wood, hay, and stubble which are perishable. He said, uh, you're going to be happy. You invested your best in the construction of your life. Chapter 9, 1 Corinthians. Verse 24. This passage is about an athlete. It's an athletic event. And it says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but every, but everyone... Now let me read this over. But know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly... So find I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means, when I have preached to others, Paul is saying, I myself should be a castaway. There were games in Corinth about every other year, and it included these running events and these boxing matches, and Paul alludes to that in saying that the winners receive a crown, but it's not a gold or silver crown. It's just a fading wreath. Anything in this life will not last. But he said, we, we will receive a, a, a crown, an eternal crown, that's not corruptible. It's incorruptible. Now, I wanted you to be exposed to these passages tonight because it's important for us to see the nature the importance, the seriousness of this judgment. And until that time comes, we're either going to live for ourselves or we're going to live for the Savior. And what we need to be doing, we need to start doing now. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. We're to be zealous unto good works. We're not saved by works, but we have been created unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. He's coming to give every man according to his works. I'm reminded of a little girl that needed a birth certificate in order to enroll in school, and her mother instructed her, Honey, this is the only copy we have. Don't lose it. Well, on her way to school, she got distracted and, and uh, it, it disappeared and she uh, began to lose her control of herself and she was sitting on a curb and, and weeping and, and crying and a man passed her and said, Young lady, what's wrong? She said, Mister, I've lost my excuse for being born. You know, if you're not serving God, you've lost your excuse for being born again. There's something you are to do 
for Christ. And we're all unprofitable servants, but our service to God is not unprofitable. Here's what I found in my life. I'm blessed right now. I am so blessed. I can't tell you what God has done in my life, in my wife's life, in my family's life. I am so blessed. And, and there are just moments when I just can't control myself and, and I get excited. Anybody out here like that? Remember out of a lady coming, a very dignified lady coming in a church service and she had gotten so convicted about how good God was to her and, uh, and she said, Preacher, I think I need to praise God. And He said, well, lady, just go ahead. She said, whoopee. <laughs> well, uh, man, we've all been blessed. Look at that next slide. You see, we're blessed now, but we're rewarded later. There are times that no one has recognized what I've done, but I didn't do it to be recognized. But God, who has never overlooked any labor of love, will not forget that. He will reward it. What does God expect from you then? If you're saved, does He expect anything? Maybe a few things. Maybe everything, maybe nothing. Should you expect more from your staff than you do for your membership? That's not right. Oh, I know they have a higher level of responsibility. And, and the Bible says those that teach are under greater judgment. But all of us will be judged by God. I ran across an article that says it all. Speaking of the first 21st century American Christian, a church growth expert said this, even committed church attenders are attending church less often. And then he went on to list seven things. Look at those on the screen. Uh, they, they're not attending because middle class money allows them to do other things. Kids' activities are chosen over church. More people are traveling many times over the weekend. There are blended and single parent families now that there is a conflict of when the kids are going to be there, when they're not going to be there. There's, there's even online options for our church nowadays. And the culture, the cultural disappearance of guilt. You know, it's, it's life, they say. And then church may offer no immediate, direct, or positive benefit on any given Sunday. You may come and say, you know, I don't know what the point was today. I don't have any disagreement with a lot of those statements. Many of those statements are true. What, what I have a disagreement about was the, the original statement. Look at it. Even committed church attenders are attending church less often. That's what I have a contention with. Isn't it amazing that you and I find time to do what we want to do? Right now, uh, Susan and I, when we are home, uh, follow our grandson, who is a football player for last year's state championship, Alito Bearcats. And you knew I was going to get it in there, didn't you? And we, we, are, we are so thrilled. Now, we, even when we're not there, we're listening to Bearcat football on radio. 
we were up in Cincinnati uh, three weeks ago, and we, we were up there an hour later, you know. We were up to like way past our bedtime <laughs> listening to Bearcat football. And uh, we, we loved doing that kind of thing. And, and I wasn't feeling well Friday. I, I, I text uh, Tyler and said, uh, man, you better get some sermons together or something. This old man's not feeling good. I, I had a second uh, shingles vaccination. You're, you know what I'm talking about? They have these double, you know, they, they don't want to poke you just once. They want to poke you twice. And man, I've got a muscle right here that I've never had in my life. It's three days and going. It made me sick. I had the shivers. I had a low-grade fever. I felt like a, I don't even, I think dogs felt better now. We really missed the game. It was cold weather, and I knew I need to be here and be in some kind of physical condition to preach, but I'll tell you, my heart was out at that ball game because I had a grandson out there who was participating in a 45 to nothing win. The game was over by the first quarter. Isn't it amazing? We, we find time to do whatever we want to do. We want to travel. We'll take a week off. If uh, we don't want to, we're not feeling well, uh, we'll just uh, call in or not call in at all. Now, folks, I'm not trying to shame you. I'm trying to aim you. Because if you're only going to change your life by shame, that will eventually wear off. I'm just trying to remind you that one day we will give an account to God. And probably your rationale may not be quite as good as you first thought it to be. I'm just talking about the passage that's before us in this uh, book of 2 Corinthians. So what is, what is Christ looking for? Let's go to the screen here and see. What's he looking for? If, if Christ is, uh, is going to judge us, he's going to judge us if we glorified him. You know, that's, that's really what life is. It's about glorifying him. It's about uh, expanding his knowledge in the earth that, that he is God and our life is about bringing Him glory. Uh, what do you think about? What's your spiritual chewing gum? I mean, you know those free times when you got that little bit of time? What are you, what are you thinking about? God says that uh, He perceives our thoughts. I, I love old people now, since I am one. For years we've collected antiques and now that I'm nearly 75, Susan's crazy about me. <laughs> you know what we ought to be thinking about? We ought to be thinking about eternity every day. Somehow we ought to have these moments to where we slip off in our mind and just think, I'm closer to heaven today than I've ever been. My heart's there. I have so much there already. Our thinking is so much consumed with this world that it's marginalized the next world. Here's something else. 
were you really available to him? It's really not about availability. It's not about ability. It's about availability. For all of my books out there, all my writings that I've done for about 30 plus years now, the most surprised person is me. I was so marginal in school. I, I made straight C's because that's all you had to do to play sports. If they'd said you have to make B's, I would have made B's. But I was so involved in being, this will surprise you, the, church, the, the class clown. By the way, that's why I failed one half of freshman English. The teacher didn't think I was that funny. <laughs> so she failed me. I took freshman, one half of freshman English and senior English at the same time. Yeah. I, I was not a good student, but it wasn't because I couldn't be. It was because I just wasn't challenged by it. I had good teachers, good people. I had other things that were important, like racing cars, playing baseball, basketball. Really into girls a lot, too, I'm going to tell you. I, I had that gender deal figured out by 10 years old. Never had any gender dysphoria. Really like girls. I used to say, even now when I preach in churches, you know, I love pastors and I love pastors' wives, but I never could get that to come out right. Okay. What I'm saying is, folks, there's a lot of our lives that just aren't available. I'm not talking about quitting your job and going on the mission field or taking up some kind of... Uh, kind of strange life. I'm just asking, when you have an opportunity tomorrow, are you available to Him? He's the, he's the God who opens doors. And He closes doors. It's not about ability, it's about availability. And how about your language? Every word spoken, we will be judged for, according to Jesus. He's kind of a high authority, if you didn't know that. Every word. There's a lot of casual language, even among Christian people today. We've allowed the language of the world to intrude into our vocabulary. And euthanisms, I think them. I'm not sure of them. But we use, we use words that are a little lower class slang. But when the higher class is vulgarity, it's wrong. We need to clean up our language. It's one of the things that I, I, I struggled with when I was a kid. I, I hung out with guys that used bad language. And if my mother and dad had found out that I knew that language, or especially if I used that language, I would have been a, a mute all my life. But you know when my bad language left? When God really captured my life. Bad language went away. Now I know the language, but I don't use them on very many occasions. That's not right. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Now, uh, do you have a language issue? God's going to judge us for a language. Our language should be about Him 
and not a, in some kind of adverse way of uh, using bad language. Here's something else. God's looking for faithfulness to the church. I'm a church guy. Are you a church people? I believe this is one of the main ways God is going to judge us is how we, how we honored His church. And, and I don't know that I don't know how that's going to be judged, but I know this. If you're faithful to church, you've got a lot of things figured out. That Jesus is going to say, you, you got it. I had, I've had such a great church life. I started going to church nine months before I was born. And, and, and my family kept me in church. We didn't have an option. We didn't have a... A family meeting on Sunday. Are we going to church today, boys? No, we knew on Saturday night. We were getting clothes ready. We were going to get up in the morning and go to church. And all along in my life, that I was saved because I was in church. I was baptized by a Baptist church. I surrendered my life publicly as a man of God in a church at the age of 18. I was ordained in a Baptist church. I was married in a Baptist church, about the only thing we didn't do uh, in church was have our children. And, Jesus, and Susan's been very narrow-minded about that. She wanted to do that in the hospital. <laughs> Other than that, we've been really faithful church people. And I have no negative, bad, no terrible things to tell you about what a wonderful thing it is to find myself having been Faithful to Christ's church. It'll be really good for you, or it may be not so good. And then how about your heart? Did you have a heart for people? Did, did, you, did you even think of outside of yourself? What about, what about your family? What about those that you have some circle of influence with? You know, God looks on the heart. He looks on our heart. He's looking for people that have a heart for people. That's how, that's how you got saved. Somebody had a heart for you. And then, uh, did you include God in your finances? I know, that, I know people say, oh, I knew you'd finally get that Baptist preacher. Well, It's one of the ways that we can't hide what we really feel in our heart. You can fake everything else. You can say a fake prayer. You can be in church and not really be in church. But one of the real tests of a life captured by Christ is that you honor Him with your finances. It's the only way... It's the only antidote for the materialistic greed that comes into our life is to be a generous person. What about your finances? What about the way you give? Is it a generous portion or is it uh, kind of a legalistic, whatever? That's what he's looking for. These are some of the things. I'm sure... I'm sure this isn't all of the things, but it's some of the things. And eventually what's going to happen is when we're brought before Him, we're going to be given crowns, the Bible says, 
they're going to be awarded and received by those who have served God. I have no idea how that's going to turn out for you and me, and, and that may be, that may be uh, tied to the Bible passage. I don't know whether we're going to walk around with you know this kind of deal right here. I don't know. It's probably be pretty cool for Brother Bill and me to have our bald head all covered up. And, and that may be, but the whole point of those crowns is that we have, we have served God faithfully here so that we can recognize our Savior who is worthy of all honor. We'll lay our crowns before Him. And that old song in our hymn books, Must I go and empty-handed, must I meet my Savior so? Is there anything in your life worthy of what Jesus would say, well done? You know, I only, there's only four words that I want to hear, and I want to close with this. When I close my life, my eyes in this life, when I close my eyes in this life, I want to hear my Savior say, Jerry, we've been waiting for you. Welcome home. And you fought a good fight. You finished the course. You've, you've kept the faith. And then if he would say at the judgment seat, now that's going to have to wait. He's going to welcome me home. Then there's going to be a waiting period until his rapture return. And then we'll be judged at the judgment seat. And then won't it be wonderful if he will say, to any of us, to all of us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. The, the title of this message is, What Should Keep Us Humble. And I'm humbled by the thought that I will stand before Him, that He will look over my whole life, and that through a yielded life that's been captured by Him, he will say, Jerry, you, you didn't get it all right, but here's what you did get right. And uh, here, let me get, isn't it amazing? He's going to give us rewards for what he did through us. He's, he's going to reward us for what he did. He opened the doors, he gave the power, he gave the intellect, he gave the desire, and he's going to say, Jerry, Here's what you allowed me to do through your life. So here we are. I would suggest that all of us need to immediately review our lives tonight before it's going to be reviewed by Him. There. Actually, it's reviewed every time we come to church and hear preaching. God is reviewing our life. He's motivating us to change. He's reaching out to us to avoid any moment. The Bible says in 1 John 2.28 that you may have confidence and not be ashamed before His coming. I've always wondered about that verse that says, He'll wipe away all tears from their eyes in heaven. What does that mean? I've heard people say it's because believers are going to be weeping in regret over a life misspent. That could be true. But the passage 
I, I always go with the passage. The passage emphasizes the comfort rather than the tears. God will wipe away all tears. Until then, what about you? Are you serving the Lord? Is it about you or is it about Him? Is it about self or is it about the Savior? Let me be the first to say I'm humbled by the very thought of my Savior judging my life thoroughly as He will. And Abraham well knew the judge of all the earth will do right. And we will all respond to that judgment with thanksgiving. Let's stand for prayer.